Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The C.D. Howe Institute 2021 shadow budget recommended the federal government return to around the pre-pandemic 30% of GDP net debt burden within two decades. Federal budget 2021 shows that marker of fiscal stability not being attained until 2055. So how can we right this financial ship as it clears the storm of COVID-19? For insight, we turn to Alex Laurent, the Institute's Director of Research, Senior Fellow Don Drummond of Queen's University, and the C.D. Howe Institute's CEO, Bill Robson. I began our conversation by asking Bill about the implications of not returning to fiscal stability until 2055. It's very difficult to evaluate this budget when it comes to long-term sustainability, uh, partly because the horizon for the projections of, of five years uh, isn't enough to really give you a sense of what the government is baking in in terms of longer term spending uh, and also because the assumptions that are important in deciding whether we're comfortable with the, those debt ratio projections aren't clear. Um, and I guess the way I would summarize it is to say, uh, and Don has said this in other contexts, that they're really uh, Don talked about rolling the dice. I would say it's kind of a knife edge projection. If we are lucky on growth and interest rates and if the government sort of behaves itself longer term, uh, then we'll be okay. If we're unlucky on growth and interest rates and the government uh, continues to add new things all the time, uh, then we won't be okay. And it's always troubling to see a government that's uh, relying on uh, fiscal projections that are relying on good luck, uh, because uh, sometimes we're lucky and sometimes we're not. We had a crisis a, a bit more than a decade ago that really punched a hole in our fiscal framework. We've just had another one that punched an even bigger hole. There's no guarantee that other things aren't going to come along in time. So on the whole, I'd have to say I'm, I'm not comforted by what I see in the budget. Don? Well, I'll start off with a reference you made to 2055. That comes from a chart that's whipped in with no context and, and without any numbers and assumptions in the budget on page 55. And it shows that net GDP ratio declining ever so slightly and ever so gradually to 30% by 2055, which of course is leaving Canada with a very high stock of debt for more than a generation. We usually talk about this is a budget for a generation. This is punting the bill even beyond the current generation, even beyond the next generation and the two out there. But there's no assumptions. All it says is that growth has been enhanced 0.2 percentage points per year due to the measures of this budget, but it doesn't say from what to what. Uh, there's sort of a waving of hands and you can infer from another chart that they're using a potential growth rate of 1.7% over this decade but they don't say if that's what they use for the longer term, is it 1.7 to 1.9 or some completely different number. And I think we would be able to demonstrate if we had those numbers, you could make a very tiny change in the growth and the interest rate assumptions and that decline in the debt ratio wouldn't occur at all. So I think one of the reasons why you have governments and why you have budgets is to provide a collective insurance for risks that we can't deal with on an individual basis. And the irony here is not only does this budget not provide an insurance against things going wrong, they're actually the major reason why the risk of something going wrong is elevated. So they're not, not just shirking the duty of insurance. And as Bill said, maybe this will work out all right. We can't sit here and definitively say in 2021 that this is going to go great for the next two generations, but it sure could go wrong very badly. 
I think, too, we should worry more about the intergenerational context of it. Uh, I, I worry already what we are handing off to the next generation and next generations. The biggest thing is a, a heavily damaged environment that they are never going to be able to fix, but they're going to have to devote enormous resources to coping and adapting to. And that adaptation will probably incur in absorbing $170 a ton carbon. They're going to pay things like CPP, QPP premiums that are worth more than the benefits over their lifetime because we, my generation and the previous generation, didn't pay enough into that. And as Bill said, there, there will be other shocks. Um, maybe 1946 to 1973, we had a fairly long period without any larger shocks, but we've had one more than every decade ever since then. I think everybody would have to say we're likely to have some variant of not only the virus continuing, but some other health ones as well. So the probability is something going wrong and making this picture very troubling. So there's two things that it leaves us a very high stock of debt, has a lot of spending. But I think the big thing is an explicit decision to tell Canadians you don't need to pay for this higher spending. That's fine. We can just borrow all of it. We'll punt it way down the road and that may or may not work out. Alex, you're nodding your head. Yes, I, I, I fully agree with Don. Maybe I, I, I can add a few things. Um, if, if you look at, at the next five years, and that's the budget horizon, the next five years, you see that the, the debt to GDP ratio starts at 49% and end, ends at 49%. So over the next, next five years, it, it's a relatively stable debt to GDP ratio. So uh, just to emphasize the risks, if anything happens in those five years, uh, a shock, an adverse shock, we, we're sure to, to end up with a, a ratio that will be higher than 49%. And then the, the anchor is over the medium term to reduce that debt ratio. We don't know what the medium, medium term is because it's not defined. And also uh, reducing the debt ratio could mean anything, could mean reducing it from a new let's say there's an adverse shock and it's it's a it's a 56 percent it could be reducing it from that new 56 to what 55 like we we, we don't over the medium term so it's extremely unclear and it, it presents all the risks that that don just described including interest rate the long-term projections rely on very low interest rates and growth long-term projections uh, rely on a pretty sizable boost of gdp growth uh, both of which may not happen. Uh, Michael, maybe I'll just jump off uh, or, or take this opportunity, because uh, since we're talking about sustainability, to highlight one of the reasons that I think uh, people generally should worry about this. We talk a lot about the ability of the government to finance its borrowing at reasonable cost, which naturally, in terms of the arithmetic, is uh, has got to be a concern. Uh, I think that it's worth pointing out that um, right now, the government is borrowing a very high proportion of every uh, dollar that it spends on average. And arguably, uh, when they think about a new spending program, uh, they're just thinking about borrowing all of it. I mean, the, they're not raising taxes much to cover any of the new things that they're talking about. And what co what concerns me about that is that that many of the programs they're talking about, childcare, for example, uh, are are not one-offs. Uh, these are things that are going to continue on, uh, presumably as long as there are children in Canada. Uh, we are likely to see more uh, as we work up to an election call uh, in addition. Um, and, and if you're building all of that on a foundation of borrowing, 
uh, any reasonable person looking ahead, including a province that might be thinking, well, this is a shared cost program, uh, do I want to get into it? Any reasonable person looking ahead has to say, this doesn't look durable. There are going to be changes, there are going to be pullbacks, uh, the federal government at some point is going to retrench. So any idea that we have that we're going to build childcare uh, or a green economy or anything else on these ongoing outlays by the federal government, uh, really, I think that's not realistic. People should be looking very skeptically at that. And if the federal government comes dangling money in front of you, uh, which requires you to make like a 30-year commitment on something, you might uh, think twice before taking that bait. Let's, though, sort of expand upon the idea of paying for this budget from the perspective of past crises. You know, we've already talked about how, you know, you're looking at the next 30 years or so with expectations of no additional crises beyond what we've already experienced. But the Second World War was paid for not by tax increases or service cuts, but through economic growth. Now, Don, you've written that the pandemic has largely been a shock to the economy's supply capacity. So why won't the pent up economic demand post pandemic be enough to grow our way out of the financial burden of the virus? Well, let me start off with the comment that we did pay down the debt from the Second World War in a relatively painless fashion. But nominal GDP growth, the combination of real growth and inflation, averaged almost 10% from 1946 until well into the 1970s, a combination of extraordinarily strong and roughly split 50-50 between real and nominal growth. Remember back in those days, uh, as bad as inflation in many times, uh, as long as interest rates don't go crazy, it kind of helps on the revenue side. And of course, we did have that big factor. And we had that phenomenal surge in labor force participation coming out of the Second World War, principally with a generation of women entering the labor force. But the female participation rate could still well go up and the child care program should, could be the factor to unleash that. But it's not far behind the male rate and it is, relative, aside from the pandemic effect, is relatively, uh, relatively high already. So I don't think we're going to likely see that kind of growth burst. The economic statement at the end of 2020 actually said the Department of Finance was lowering its view of the economy's potential growth rate below 1.7% per year. Now they say that they're a bit more confident and with the supply side measures in this budget, they think the view will be 1.7%, but that, that's a shadow what the growth rate was back in the, in the, in the post Second World War problem. If you add in something like 2% inflation to that, you're, and given that revenues tend to grow with, the, with the, the economy, you're talking about revenue growth with unchanged taxes, it would grow somewhere in the three and a half to 4% range per year. And that's sort of what they permanently view for program spending. So you don't have a, the, the type of post-war dynamic that's going to use the economy to drive down that rate. You would either have to pare back on the spending proposals or you would have to increase taxes in some fashion. And that's even if you're fairly fortuitous and we get a very modest rise in interest rates. It could go far further south than that. Most of the federal government's spending at the end of the Second World War was military. So cutting it back was not painful. It was quite the natural thing to do. And it resulted in the federal government shrinking uh, by an unimaginable uh, proportion when you, when you look at today. Like literally most of the federal government spending was military and most of it disappeared. If the federal government were about to shrink in size by half as a result of the wind down of the response to the pandemic, 
uh, then we'd be talking about an entirely different situation. Uh, but that's not that's not the the situation we're in now. So in addition to the circumstances that Don was talking about, it's important to remember uh, that the federal government ran massive surpluses after the Second World War because the demand for military spending disappeared, and that's mostly what they were doing. It's it's entirely different. It's interesting to contrast the the post-war experience to what is actually projected in this budget. So as Bill said, like in in, after uh, from 1922 to 1942, we've had 20 years of large primary surpluses. A primary surplus is is, is your uh, your revenues minus minus your expenditures on programs, not including the interest. So when when you have a primary surplus, pretty much what you're doing is it's kind of a a repayment on the principal on the debt. You know, you're kind of repaying some of the debt. And then after that, what remains is the interest payments. And of course, like you, you, you sometimes you still have a deficit, so you still borrow uh, a little bit to pay your interest. But having having a primary surplus uh, can is akin to uh, repaying your principal on the debt for a government. So 20 years of it after uh, the uh, primary surpluses after World War One, and from 1947 to 1977, after World War II, that's 30 years of primary surpluses. So that's, you know, that's after huge, like, like the COVID, after huge uh, primary deficits uh, lasting for uh, just a few years. So here, COVID, we have the same experience, a huge primary deficit in, in 2021. But what, what are our projections? 20 years of primary deficits, not surpluses. So this is to contrast the experience that we, our projections with the experience after the world wars, it's widely different. We're not planning to repay any of the principal and we're gonna borrow the interest. So that's what we're, that, that's what we're planning on, um, on passing on to future generations. And I, I, I think what we're planning is widely different to what happened uh, after the world wars. Bill, Don brought up something interesting specifically about the differences between the post-Second World War recovery and what we're looking at here, and that was the newly included a cohort of women in the workforce entering in a way that they had never done before. Now, Bill, you had pointed out the, the child care component to this particular budget. Parents were promised uh, to get a $10 a day child care um, program across Canada by 2026. How important do we see this as a bolstered child care system as uh, critical to the economic recovery that we will get? Well, if it's critical to the economic recovery, then the economic recovery is in trouble because I don't see this proposal uh, going very far uh, in in the short term for reasons that we've already touched on. It's a shared cost program with the provinces. Uh, I would, if I were a province, be quite wary of accepting a federal subsidy that would require me to make very long-term investments of a kind that might be difficult to back off from if the federal funding dries up. There's the additional important wrinkle that Quebec already has a program. So there's a, roughly a quarter of the country less than that in terms of the, the kids covered, but you know, in terms of rough proportions where there isn't likely to be much of a change. So I'm, I'm not uh, looking for a, any dramatic action uh, in this area in the short run. I think it's much more straightforward to uh, provide parents with a bit more money 
and a lot of that would naturally uh, find its way in into childcare. Uh, but if the federal government is is counting on anything structural happening here that's going to make a huge difference to the economy, then uh, it's not going to happen in the short run. And it's worth mentioning also that in the long run, um, any increase in uh, women's participation rates in the workforce that comes out of this is going to be a one-off. It's not anything that accelerates your growth over time. What matters over time, over the very long run, is whether the programs that are put in place are are good for the kids. And there is good quality daycare and there's bad quality daycare. There's early childhood education and there's more like warehousing. And there's nothing in that I'm seeing in the budget that is telling me that what we're going to get here is is better than, um, for example, what exists in Quebec right now. And the evidence on that's kind of mixed as to whether it's good for the kids or not. So um, I, I would see this not as anything very significant in terms of short term for the economy. And when it comes to longer run and, the, and Canada's human capital it really depends on on the quality of the uh, care and the education that the kids are getting and i can't judge from what i'm seeing in the budget whether that's going to be good or not another interesting component it's it's the cost of all of this first it's a cost share program and and we know what that does in terms of incentives for uh, the provinces who will be running these programs in terms of containing the cost it reduces the incentive of cost containment by half because you're only paying half of the cost and the federal government is not going to be controlling these programs. They're going to be provincial programs, just like healthcare was, and healthcare has been transformed into block funding. So the same thing may need to happen for for uh, for childcare, but not until the cost will have escalated by quite a lot. And and, and the second component of all of this is if you look at Quebec. Uh, this is expensive, like building all those child care centers, government child care centers, because they are the ones that are driving the quality, uh, all other um, like family, uh, family based child care in Quebec. Uh, they, they, like Bill says, there's really mixed evidence in terms of quality of child care there. But the, the government child care centers, um, you know, there's at least there, there's some evidence of, of good quality child care, but they're very expensive to run and they're very expensive to build. So. Uh, th th this is going to be an expensive program. It's going to be cost shared. So I, I can't wait to see how much this is really going to cost uh, after after 10 years of this. I was going to go back to our theme of history because what this feels like is not the post-war period, but the period 1968 to about 1984. And the first thing in common I think we'll discover was over that period, Canada shifted permanently down to a slower rate of growth. And it was deny, deny, deny. And every single budget was a hope that the slowdown in growth had been temporary and it would come back. And they always overpredicted the the fate of the budgets. They always had revenue growth that was too strong and they always had very strong spending growth which they thought would get funded by the rapid revenue growth. And year after year after year, they did that and created these huge operating deficits and then started to address it in the mid-1980s, but ever so gently and clearly not enough, and then boiling to the progress we, we had in, in a crisis. So economically and fiscally, the, the time around, those were sort of accidental bad forecasts that led the operating deficits. These are eyes wide open. These are deliberate, and I find that troubling. The other aspect that makes it feel like 1960s and 1970s is the attitude that governments can and should direct every single aspect of economic activity. I haven't seen that kind of mentality in a long time. And in fact, it kind of got purged, I thought, in the late 80s and through the 1990s, where 
the public sector got out of uh, book publishing and transportation and the like, and it's back in all of them. Uh, the pretense was, of course, the pandemic, but obviously it goes way beyond that. And you can see the degree of direction and in industrial policy, the direction and prescribing how we should proceed to get uh, net zero, uh, the projection of how clean growth is going to go, the support for the super clusters, the government will pick the clusters. It's that attitude that we kind of had decided at one point wasn't the way to go, and now it's back. How that will all play, so, so we, we've laid the beginning of a track that we played out from the late 60s and 70s that, at, that ended very badly. And of course, sitting here today, you always think, this time will be different, but will it? Um, as we know, history tends to repeat itself. So we, the, at the least we could say, there's a lot of risks here, not only from that macroeconomic fiscal perspective, but from that degree of government and intervention in virtually every aspect of economic life. The NDP had demanded a wealth tax. Instead, we got taxes on luxury boats and cars. Would a wealth tax have been an effective tool? Who wants first kick at that one? Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start off and and and. and and you've got a yacht, admit it. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm a 16-foot ski boat, but I don't think that will characterize as a yacht. Um, I hate the idea of a wealth tax because it's an admission that you've already failed. If you want to tax it, it should be taxed on the income. And if somebody manages to get some savings out of what they've paid on their income taxes and gets a rate of return on that, that's fair game as far as I'm concerned. So if you want to tax the wealthier, at least be honest with it and do it properly and tax it through the income flow. And by the way, Canadians are already taxed more than 50% at the higher income levels. It's already extraordinarily high rate, so I don't really think there's anything to be gained with that. But I, I would hate to resort to the form of wealth tax. You know, the United States and other countries have them, and if you talk to any tax professional, they don't call it amongst themselves the tax on wealth. They call it a tax on the uninformed. Um, basically is if you just spend a little bit of money and hire us as a tax advisor, we'll easily show you how to avoid this tax. So what, what's the point? You're, you're just creating a vehicle for tax avoidance and you're taxing in all the wrong ways. We, you know, I, I always get a kick out of this expression, the wealthy have to pay their fair share. You know? And the, the NDP proposal from their party convention is apparently that's 80%. Why is that the fair share that somebody should pay 80%? Uh, so they only get to keep 20%. I, I think the whole thing's nonsense, and we already have extraordinarily high marginal tax rates. And mind you, the highest rates aren't even for the higher individuals, for the people who have things like the child benefit clawback. So I think we've gone as far as we can, which is why in the shadow budget in the CEO, we suggested if you need more tax revenue, use the better vehicle, the GST. Don't lean even further on personal taxes and definitely not wealth taxes. A consumption tax? Well, let me let me just add to what, what Don said. It's implicit in what he said, so I'll, I'll just make it explicit that uh, from a practical point of view, those tax bases are very hard to get your hands on. Uh, Don mentioned the tax planning aspect of it, and there's also just uh, where people choose to live and where they where they hold their assets. Canada already has a talent retention problem. So many of our biggest stars, if you think of the cultural field, uh, so many of our most talented people uh, already are outside our borders, uh, and, and that lure is always going to be there. If you have a tax like this in place, you can bet it will get worse. So from a practical point of view, you don't collect the money, 
And then also, uh, you see more of our biggest stars uh, locating themselves uh, in the United States or in Switzerland or wherever. So I just think it's it's a populist measure. It's about hurting people you don't like, in a sense. And from a fiscal point of view, it just it's the it again. It's one of those wor- uh, feeblest foundations that you could possibly have for an ongoing program because it's just not going to provide a decent amount of revenue. Michael, you wanted to go on to consumption taxes. Before we're finished up here, I want to complain about the format of the budget itself. So if we can spend a moment on that at some point, doesn't have to be now, you may have other things you want to cover. No, let's get right into that. Um, I have a lot of complaints about the presentation of this budget in the first place. Uh, I will mention in passing on the way in that we didn't even have one last year. And I think that speaks to a casual attitude on the part of the government towards its fiscal planning and its accountability. And it disturbs me that Canadians kind of let that go by as readily as they did. Now we have a budget document from the federal government. It is more than 700 pages long. And the actual substance of it, the fiscal plan, the things that really matter, the tax changes that they're proposing, it's it's a tiny fraction of it. The fiscal numbers aren't even in the main body of the budget. They're in an annex to the budget. A person just starting at page one and flipping pages might never even get to the key numbers. And and if, if the person did, might look at them and say, well, these can't be important because they wouldn't be buried hundreds of pages deep into the document. Um, I find this really troubling. There are many provinces that put out budgets where you get the key numbers right up front. They are dozens of pages long. They are not hundreds of pages long with all sorts of self-congratulatory prose uh, and uh, endless analysis of the redistributive impacts of programs when when the analysis is, uh, is it's paper thin, right? There's no serious work that goes into this. It's impossible for them to do it in many cases. It's just all theater and window dressing. So I'll stop there. I could easily say a lot more. Uh, I think we've just gone in a very strange direction when it comes to the presentation of of these numbers. It's not a serious document. And I think uh, I would like to see governments taking it more seriously. And I would like to see parliamentarians and Canadians demanding better because this is just silly uh, to, to have something like this and, and call it any kind of a fiscal plan. It's not. It's performance theater. It's bump. And the substance is buried so deep that many people won't even find it. Yeah, but Alex and Don found it. <laughs> we are hardly your representative users. Yeah, we we know uh, to to skip over the first 500 pages and get to the stuff that, that really matters. These documents ought to be useful for parliamentarians. They ought to be useful for people who uh, aren't used to pouring through uh, and, and figuring out the accounting. Uh, I'll just mention also they've done this thing recently where they are hiding a lot of their costs. Uh, the federal government, a lot of its uh, employment costs, a lot of its operating costs are really related to employee pensions. They've dropped some of that stuff kind of below the line with this art, with this operating balance concept. So it's a very untransparent, very uninformative kind of exercise. Uh, and uh, I, when we do our report card, we haven't worked it out yet, but the CD House who does an annual report card on the quality of government reporting. Last year, the feds, uh, they'll get an F because they never presented a budget at all. Uh, this year, it's hard to see them getting better than a D because this is actually quite a disgraceful performance. They're not treating us like adults and they're not giving us the information that we should have uh, in an upfront transparent form on this michael i can tell you i i there's something i couldn't find and it's how much of the spending is actually ongoing for after like beyond 2025 there's there's a lot of spending in any budget that that it's actually permanent spending 
but it's really hard to find because everything is framed around over a number of years. So they, they announced a new program and it's going to cost that many millions over five years, over four years, over three years. And then if, if you dig a bit more and you read all these little paragraphs, a lot of this is framed over five years, which is the budget horizon. So yeah, for sure. So, so some of the stuff they say it's going to cost 250 million over five years and then ongoing, it's going to be 20 million. They don't. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the, the annual cost of the program after those five years. But everything is framed as if it's temporary, as it's, you know, now we're doing a budget for five years and everything is costing over that, those five years. But the, a lot of these programs will have ongoing costs. And it, 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 it's usually, I would have expected that it would be easier to find, you know, what is actually permanent spending and what is actually temporary spending. And more than that, there are, there are some programs that are costs only over five years and, and, and there is no mention in the text of an ongoing cost, but we all know there is going to be ongoing costs. Uh, Long-term care, support to provinces, it's $3 billion over five years. What, what's going to happen after five years? The provinces won't need any money for long-term care anymore? Like, obviously, there's going to be something. Uh, th 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 there's money paid to um, uh, Environment, Environment Canada, Sci uh, Innovation, Science Canada, Parks Canada, uh, Stats Canada, like all of those departments for purposes that are really useful, but they only costed over five years, and 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 those purposes will continue. And 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 there, there, there's people hired to uh, there's going to be people staff hired to do this. And obviously, like they're going to need to announce new spending to continue these programs in future years. But they've only announced it, uh, announced this program as if they were over five years. But we, we all know they're not, like some of them are not. The chief actuary does reports on uh, old age security and related payments over long periods of time to see what the long-term implications of demography are. So there are tools available to do that kind of analysis. There's no reason why the government couldn't hold itself uh, and Canadians couldn't hold them to a higher standard when it comes to what the ongoing implications of some of these initiatives are. We should have that information. So I'll give you another example of that. Um, there's 275 million described as over five years, but it's almost all in the first three years for support for indigenous languages. Uh, in 2016 budget, they gave money for five years, which is ending this year. So basically it's not really new money. It's a continuation of a program that's been in place in 2016. Anybody who knows the slightest bit about the bad shape of indigenous languages knows that this is a generational uh, plight that is going to be going on for a very, very long time. And if the government's going to provide support, that payment is going to be quasi-permanent. At least it's going to span for two or more generations. Um, I have not worked on a budget for 21 years since I left finance in 2000. And, and I guess it's fair enough now to reveal an internal uh, trick of the trade we did. It speaks to Bill's point of lack of transparency. We had a, setting, a saying amongst the bureaucrats, the sun never sets on a government sunsetting program. So whenever we face something like that, we buried a hidden reserve into the budget. So there's this ever so handy category, other program spending. And if I were there, and this was the time I was doing the budget, if we had a prospect like something was funded for five years and it went to zero, we just buried in a hidden reserve. And it used to lead to some fairly uh, hilarious conversations because when the five years came up and the politicians, of course, wanted to continue it, they presumed that there was going to be an ongoing hit to the fiscal framework. And of course, there wasn't because it was buried. But speaking to Bill's point, while that did 
provide some protection, you could certainly say it's not very transparent. Whether there are hidden low reserves in here or not, I, I can't say. I haven't been involved in the preparation of this or other recent budgets. Let's come full circle here to this conversation with you, Bill. Once this pandemic is behind us, how do we revisit the funding of this higher spending to ensure we don't drown in debt? In the CD House shadow budget that uh, Alex and Don and I collaborated on, <clears throat> we proposed that there ought to be a hike in the GST rate of two percentage points in 2023. And um, we knew that that was not the likeliest proposal to uh, make it into the actual budget. Uh, we knew that it would be quite uh, unpopular or at least would attract a lot of comment uh, as it did. Um, it was there for a reason, though. Every percentage point on the GST raises currently about $10 billion. So you can kind of think of some of the proposals that were being made before the budget and some of the things that we're seeing in the budget in terms of sort of GST percentage points, GST units. When I compare uh, the bottom line in this budget in the out years, so after the temporary COVID stuff has rolled off, uh, to what the government was projecting in their fall statement, I see a deterioration of roughly $20 billion a year. So if you wanted to finance that on an ongoing basis and not expose ourselves to the risks that uh, Don particularly was talking about earlier, uh, that's what you would need to do. You would say raise the GST rate by a couple of percentage points and that puts your bottom line in a place where you know you can sustain the programs and that that's going to stay under control. When I compare where we are now to the 2019 budget, the last actual budget that the federal government uh, had in place, I see a further change in the bottom line of about uh, $20 billion. Um, I will say just uh, parenthetically uh, that uh, Alex did a whole lot of forensic work trying to figure out the difference between the spending and the tax increases because the non-transparent budget documents did not provide that breakdown. Uh, but uh, having seen Alex's breakdown, I think these numbers uh, pretty much hold up. Another $20 billion deterioration in the bottom line in the out years, not the pandemic, but but further out uh, since the 2019 budget. So that's another two percentage points on the GST. We are building in bigger federal government in Canada, and in the long run, that is going to cost us. So in these GST units... Uh, essentially what's implied in the budget relative to where we were two years ago is a four percentage point hike in the GST. Uh, politically painful, uh, economically unpleasant, certainly in the short run damaging to the recovery if it were put in place, but it's important for people to know we're building a bigger government and in the long run you're going to have to pay for it. Well, I suppose if we get a 4% increase in the uh, GST, we'll know, Bill, where to send the pitchforks and the torches, because clearly your house is going to be the destination. But uh, Michael and Bill, that is the key issue. Unfortunately, CD Howe representatives aren't running for public office because they don't think they do too well in the environment. The, the problem for the government for this idea is I think Canadians will, by and large, find will be supportive of this approach in the budget. It kind of sounds good, right? You can have all this stuff and you don't need to pay for it. And they're told, don't worry about it, it'll all work out. Why wouldn't you believe that? And how do you get Canadians to accept that you have to fund this stuff. That, that doesn't seem to be the mood of the country. It doesn't seem to be the mood in other countries. The United States is going down the same route with a much higher debt and uh, let's be happy and, and don't worry. I mean, if they think back, 
the environment in the mid 1990s. Canadians were supportive of that attack on the de on the deficit and and the debt got a government re-elected with a strong majority in 1997, but the environment was terribly different that time. People perceived we were on the precipice of a crisis, we were the honorary members of the third world, our dollar was the northern peso, that hurt Canadians. We're so far away from that environment right now, and people are being told, this is fine, it'll all work out, and when somebody tells you that, sign it, kind's good. Why would you want to go through the pain? Uh, at the moment, the whole world seems to be, uh, or at least, you know, the developed countries, and as Don said, the United States, very enthusiastic for spending far more than you're taking in, uh, not worrying that the your measures of the fed of of the government's capacity to deliver services are deteriorating so rapidly because you know central banks have been buying the debt and there's high saving rates because people got all these transfers and they couldn't spend them on haircuts or anything else. So it wasn't very hard to finance uh, the debts, and it's not surprising the mood is like that. Uh, we have been here before, as we've been discussing throughout this conversation, uh, and there were periods in the 1980s when uh, people at the C.D. Howe Institute, uh, people in the Department of Finance, uh, Michael Wilson as uh, Brian Mulroney's finance minister, I think of him particularly, warning that there was trouble coming. Uh, and, and people were disinclined to believe it because they'd come out of such a long period when it was possible to uh, tax less than you were spending and enjoy it and everything just seemed to be fine. I think it's important for us to continue to make the point that there are these big swings. Uh, the mood is going to take a while to change, but the economic reality will change ahead of the mood and when we think about the situation that Canada is going to be in in five years 10 years 15 or 20 years uh, we can make an incremental difference now in the degree to which governments kind of build in these programs that are ultimately going to be hard to afford because when that swing eventually comes as it will as a matter of arithmetic as a matter of reality uh, we want to be better set up to handle it so even if right now the prevailing mood is in a different direction I think it's important for uh, people who are looking further ahead and have sort of seen these fiscal cycles before to keep waving that flag and say uh, let's not overdo this folks uh, because the future will arrive one day and when we look back we're going to be wanting to uh, congratulate our past selves for having made wise decisions instead of cursing our past selves for making foolish decisions Alex, last thought from you. Something that hasn't that we haven't talked about this uh, in this budget, the uh, the, the economy is, fair, is faring much better than we we thought in the fall update. One hundred more billion dollar uh, added to GDP in twenty twenty five, and and that makes a big difference, uh, even with respect to the GST. Right? You just you just you add some growth, and 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 you add something to the GDP, and and then you need you, you, there's way less you need to do on the tax side. Um, but but yeah, like it, it's very it's very hard to predict because like I haven't had an haircut since what like six seven months. So we did have extended restrictions. We have a third wave, and 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 that was all baked in the fall the fall statement. And so we were supposed to get uh, GDP in 2025 that would have been like something like 150 billion dollar less than what is pre predicted in this budget. So yeah, we have we have all, we had all these escalated restrictions. Yet we had a high we have a higher GDP projected in this budget. So all of this is very uncertain. Like you, you do a few things on GDP and and it makes a big difference. I'm a competitive person, so I just wanted to say that I haven't had a haircut in 25 years. <laughs>
I haven't had hair this long since I was in high school. And of course, it was a rather different color back then. Business up front, party out back Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. The smooth domed Don Drummond is a senior fellow and shaggy Alex Laurent is the director of research. Still to come from a haircut free and physically distanced C.D. Howe Institute, a focus on the future of four wheels through two webinars, April 26th, electrifying Canada's automobile sector and April 28th, leading the North American automotive value chain. Also, April 29th, delivering good returns in a frothy environment with the president and CEO of Investment Management Corporation of Ontario, Bert Clark. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.